Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, there's a movement of scholars who believe that the situation facing the earth is so serious that uh, the only hope for the planet at this point is for humans to go extinct. It's called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And their argument is that when you look at the effect that humans are having on the earth, that impact looks exactly the same as what you see when a disease attacks a body. And on that basis, they say that I mean, the only way to reverse the damage is for humans to go extinct, voluntarily, of, of course. One of the voices in this group was a doctor named Gerald Lowenstein out of California. He said that we are infecting the planet, growing recklessly as cancer cells do, destroying the Earth's other specialized cells and poisoning our air supply. From that perspective, the main disease to be eliminated is us. A little closer to home, over in London, Ontario, at Western University, there was one scholar said that the an examination of city growth, population growth, and resource consumption all leads to one conclusion, that humans are a cancer to Earth. Humans are a cancer, folks, okay? And if you disagree, folks in this movement will call you a biological supremacist, okay? I'm not, I'm not making this up. Now, I love the earth and I want the earth to thrive, but I do think there are uh, other solutions than the extinction of the human race. I mean, my goodness, Thanos even had a, a different solution. Like if you were if you're familiar with the Marvel movies, Thanos at least he didn't want to kill everybody. At least he let half of us live. Well, I don't know if it would surprise you to learn that the folks in this voluntary human extinction movement are also champions for late-term abortion, uh, open euthanasia, limits on family size, and it seems to me like of course they are. Where, where else would we expect a worldview like this to lead? Like if you assume humans are basically a cancer, if you assume humans have no special dignity or value of their own, if you assume that humans have basically no more rights on earth than any other species, why not suggest that we go extinct? And so you see that there's a link between the stories that we believe about the earth and the ways that we live our lives on the earth, right? Let me share a few more examples. These are inspired by true stories. The names are changed, but the stories are real. I'll tell you about Pete. Pete's 27, he lives in his parents' basement, and he's a gamer. Most days he plays Call of Duty online for about 8 to 10 hours a day with his friends, and he's really good at it. He says someday if he needs money, he might get a job, but for now he doesn't need it. He doesn't need money. He, he loves his life. He has everything that he needs, so there's no point getting a job. Well, that's Pete. Let me tell you about Beth and Jean, who are best friends, and they're also property investors here in Hamilton, the real estate agents. They have a friendly competition between them to see who will sell more houses per year. So what they'll do, Beth or Jean will buy a house, make a few minor improvements, maybe throw some Ikea cupboards up in the kitchen, maybe slap on a couple of coats of paint, and then turn around and sell it for a profit of between fifty dollars to $100,000. In a good year, Beth and Jean might do that 10 or 20 times each. 
and they are two of just like maybe a hundred other agents doing the same thing and they are making a fortune but in the process yeah it leaves fewer affordable homes available for the rest of us let me tell you about jasmine she's a teenager whose parents always kind of seem disappointed that they had a daughter and not a son they just don't seem to value women like their highest ambition for jasmine is to grow up marry a doctor have lots of kids and take care of the home so that her husband stays happy and he doesn't leave her well jasmine has friends at school who seem much more settled and much more secure uh, as women as females and jasmine is just kind of confused is there something wrong with her is she not meant to be a woman is there something wrong with being a, a woman? And she kind of feels like a, a second-class citizen. I'll tell you about Carlo, who is the CEO of a massive multinational brand whose products are made overseas. The, uh, the sweatshop factories where the shoes and the clothes are made are just a human rights nightmare. And they're dumping tons of waste into landfills and, and toxic chemicals into rivers the, the tech products that Carlos is responsible for. They're, they use minerals that are mined in the Amazon thanks to a clear-cutting operation that's also causing the extinction of, of, of dozens of, of indigenous species. Um, the, the products that Carlos' company makes are packaged in China with plastics that can't be recycled. The factories run on coal. The planes and the ships and the trucks that move it all run on natural gas. But here in Hamilton, that doesn't bother us because all we see are Carlos' beautifully packaged products on the shelf at a big box store. Well, that's Carlo. Let me tell you about one, just one more about, this is Dan. Dan is a pastor on the edge of burnout. I am not Dan, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Dan is a pastor on the edge of burnout and he feels like nobody else but him cares about seeing people saved. Nobody from his church joins him when he goes out and he does street evangelism. They are trying to start a community garden instead, and they, they would rather do things like that and, and gather neighbors together to pick up trash or to give out hot chocolate or do a clothing swap or host an art show and, and things like that. And Dan tells the people in his church, like, I don't mind if you guys do stuff like that on your own time. I don't mind if you do that stuff in private, but the church needs to focus on souls we are, our job is to focus on seeing souls saved. That's Dan. I wonder, what would you tell these folks if, if you could? Like, would you have some feedback or some advice for them? I'll tell you what, we'll come back to that. We'll get there. But each of these people, whether they realize it or not, each of them has internalized a certain story about why they're here and what life is all about. And that story is causing them to relate to the earth the ways that they do. Well, if you were here last week, we began a series called For God's Sake, The Seven-Part Story of Why. And we started it because we feel like we need to hear the true story that we're part of and let that true story confront some of the other stories that we've all sort of heard and internalized. And we went back before the beginning to see what scripture tells us about who God is. That was our starting point. We saw that before God is anything else, God has always been a community living in perfect love and shalom 
and joy in this, uh, this dance that we call the Trinity. And in light of who this God is, that's why idols and ideologies like individualism on the one hand and identity politics on the other hand really have no place among those who worship this God. Well, today we're focusing on the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2 because there's some really important things there that we need to see and we need to take in in order to shape the story that we tell ourselves about why we're here. See, we all have one. We all have a default sort of creation story that we believe, right? And that story, right or wrong, whether it's true or false, that story that we believe about creation is going to shape thousands of decisions that we make all the time. And so our aim today, it's actually, it's quite simple. We just want to, we want to learn why God made us. Like in the beginning, why did God create what he created? Now, I want to say at the same time, when we talk about creation, it's natural to wonder things like, how old is the earth? And, and, is Genesis compatible with science? And, and are the, the days mentioned in Genesis 1, are they literal 24-hour days? Or are they something else? And I think there's some really good questions that we could ask. And I'm happy to share my view on those things if it'll be helpful. If you, if you want to know what I believe about those things, you're invited to text in your question uh, on the phone number on the screen there. And I'll share my view when we kind of huddle up after the gathering here, but answering those specific kinds of questions, that's not really the point of this message, okay? I think, I think there are some good questions we can ask about how God created, but if this message lands, like I hope it will, we're going to become really clear on some reasons why God created. Now, let's get started. First of all, let's ask, whose is the world? Like, who does it belong to? Well, Scripture begins with the claim that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like that's the very first thing said in scripture. So God, God relates to the universe as its creator. Okay. He owns it. Uh, that's settled. That's not a question that anyone in the ancient world would have ever debated after reading this. Like it's like clearly it all belongs to him. He gets to do with the earth as he pleases. And of all the things that he could do with planet earth, he chooses to be with us. And on earth, the humans have direct access to God. Okay, now later in the Old Testament, we're going to be introduced to the idea of a, of, a, of a temple. It's this building where you go to meet with God. But first you need a priest and you need to bring a sacrifice. Well, in the beginning, we didn't need a building to meet God because the whole garden was a, was a temple. Do you see that? The garden was the temple. And in the beginning, we didn't need a priest or a sacrifice because all of us were priests. And we walked with God in the cool of the day. So whose is the earth? Who does it belong to? It is God's earth. It's God's planet. It's, it's his to do with as he pleases. And he made it as the perfect meeting place for creator and creation. Well, another question we need to bring to creation is about dignity. Like what is human life worth? What's the value of human life? And, and Genesis answers that by saying that of all the things that God created, man and woman are made in his image. Now, that's important. Like by the sixth day, God had made some really cool stuff, some really beautiful stuff. But only humans are his image bearers. I mean, by this point, God had made the sun. 
but the sun isn't made in God's image. By this point, God had made, you know, like supernovas and uh, like a brontosaurus and uh, uh, single-celled organisms. And all of those are amazing and beautiful to look at and consider. But none of these things are made in God's image. So let's go back a bit because there's a bit of a framework to the story in Genesis 1 that helps us to appreciate the dignity of, of, of men and women. So each creation day sort of has a milestone uh, that, that God accomplished on that day. On the first day, God made light and darkness. He separated the darkness from the light. That's the first day. On the second day, God separates the sea from the sky. Okay? On the third day, God creates dry land and he puts all kinds of plant life on on the earth. Those are days one to three. But then on the fourth day, God goes back and he begins to populate some of those spaces that he had made on days one, two, and three. You with me so far? Like on the fourth day, God goes and he creates a sun and the sun is going to rule the day and a moon which rules the night. So he had created the light and the darkness on the first day, but on the fourth day, he creates the these greater and lesser lights that are going to rule the day and the night. You see that? On the fifth day, God makes birds and fish, and they're going to rule the sky and the sea that he had made on the second day. You see that? He populates the sea and the sky with birds and fish on, on the fifth day. And on the sixth day, God makes land animals to populate the earth and to eat the plants that he had made on the third day. But last of all, God makes a man and a woman in his image, kind of like the apex of creation, and they they reflect God's image like a mirror. That's what it means that they're made in God's image. <clears throat> now, I have a mirror here with me. I, this is it right here. And I look at it, and I when I look straight into it, I can see my image. That's not me. That's an image of me. And it's interesting, if I turn it on an angle like this, then my image is reflected out to you, and I can see you. How many of you can see me in this mirror? Wave if you can see me. Good, yeah, so what you're looking at isn't me. You're looking at an image of me that's being reflected out at you. That's what a mirror does, okay? And, and that's what people were made to do. We were made to reflect God's image back out to the universe, and only people, like people are the only ones who are capable of doing that by our design. Now notice, on every creation day, God, we read that God saw that it was good. On the first day, God saw that it was good. Second day, God saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, though, verse 31, we read that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And so what is a human life worth? What is, it, what is the dignity of life? It's important for us to understand, based on the creation story, humans are not just one more of God's creations. Human life has a dignity rooted in the fact that every human life, no matter what size or shape or gender or color or age, all of them reflect God's image. Well, another creation question we want to ask is, what is our role or our responsibility to the earth? And this is interesting. And, you know, in verse 26 of chapter 1, God gives humans the responsibility to, quote, rule over the animals and the plants. 
Like, it's God's earth. He owns it. He has authority over it. But it seems like he's delegating his responsibility to us. Now, that that delegated responsibility seems to be explained a little bit further in the next chapter. In chapter 2, God takes a man and he puts the man in the garden. And I know this is a bit of a different story, but God puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And other translations, they say, they use language like to cultivate it and to care for it or to work it and to watch over it. It's the idea that Adam has been put in the garden and under his care, under his watch, the garden will be productive and it'll be protected. Okay, that's why he's put there. And then God brings the animals to him so that God, so that Adam will, will name the animals. Think about that. That's a huge responsibility. Whatever he calls the animals, that becomes their name. Well, that's a ton of responsibility, isn't it? That's why I like this from an Old Testament scholar whose name is Sandra Richter. She says that humanity plays a critical role in God's blueprint. Yahweh is indeed the ultimate sovereign, but humanity has been created as his representative to serve as custodian and steward, enacting the creator's will by living our lives as a reflection of God's image. Do you hear that? That's, that's what we are. Custodians, stewards, enacting the creator's will by living our lives as a reflection of God's image. We've received our authority from the creator, uh, says Sandra Richter. We rule as he would rule. We are stewards, not kings. That is so true. So what's our responsibility that we have for the earth? In the beginning, God said to the man and woman, this is mine, but I'm trusting you with it. Be good stewards of this. Take care of this for me. That's our responsibility. That's what our responsibility is. Another question is, what's our mission? Like, what are we put here to do? Well, in the garden, God gives us instructions or a mission or a mandate. In verse 28, uh, we, the, God tells the man and the woman, be fruitful and increase in number. Other versions say be fruitful and multiply. But uh, he's, he goes on and says, fill the earth and subdue it. So this is sometimes called the cultural mandate. And if this works, a couple of things happen. First of all, people are going to spread and they're going to multiply and they will organize into different villages and towns and cities. And there's going to be some areas of the earth where there's maybe more of a certain resource than others. And maybe some will be closer to waterways than others. And so each settlement or each city is going to be different and have, have just a bit of a different culture. That's what culture is. And, and culture making is part of how we're going to flourish. So people will flourish if the cultural mandate is taking place. The other thing that's going to happen is, is if we're fulfilling this mandate, we're going to see the earth flourish. In creation, the earth begins as this untamed wilderness, and we're going to subdue it. We're going to use technology and science and engineering and language and art and music and agriculture and on and on and on in order to create flourishing for the earth. It's really interesting, you know, in Genesis 2, we're told that the garden was a good source of these minerals like gold and uh, resin, some versions say lapis lazuli, and onyx. And it's like, why include details about the minerals that are in the ground in creation? Well, because we're meant to use them. We're meant to use them in order to help create flourishing for people and for the earth. Listen to this from a Canadian theologian. His name is Jamie Smith. He says, the cultural mandate then is the commissioning of human beings 
to be culture makers, tasked with unfolding the potential that is packed into creation, teasing out all the possibilities that God has planted in his good creation. We are commissioned as God's image bearers, his vice regents, charged with the task of ruling and caring for creation, which includes the task of cultivating it, unfolding and unfurling its latent possibilities through human making, in short, through culture. So what are we here to, to do? What, were, what, what mission were we given at creation? In the beginning, our mandate, our mission was to continue God's work of creation, to create flourishing for people and for the earth. And that mandate has never been canceled. That has never been revoked or rescinded. That remains our mission. Well, one more creation question I think we need to ask is, is about gender. I just think that the observation here is just too important to skip. So what does it mean that God made us male and female? Well, in, in chapter 2, we saw the, the man is given a job in the garden. And he's given that job, it seems, before the woman is made. He's put in the garden to work the garden and to keep it. And when God says, uh, you know, it's not good that, sh- that the man should be alone, he, God is going to create a, a helper suitable for him. So clearly in God's mind... A man and a woman are two distinct beings. They're not, they're not exactly the same thing. Okay? That's, it, that's reasonable to conclude. But some people take that and they conclude from the order uh, of the creation of the man and the woman. They conclude that she's maybe less important. Or that because she came from the man, that maybe she's like an imitation or a byproduct. You know, like they, they might say even that because um, the Hebrew word for wife or woman literally means from man, and, and that's true. But they might argue that on, that on the basis of the fact that the Hebrew word for wife and woman means from man, then maybe there's just really nothing uniquely great about a woman. Like maybe all a woman is is just a man who can do less. And it's just this creation story just won't support that. Like notice a couple things here. While the woman is taken from the man, the man was taken from the earth. Like, that's literally what Adam means, from earth. And I, I would just like to point out that those who say that a, a woman is basically a little less than a man, they never say man is basically a little less than the earth. Nobody says that. Also, let's notice that back in, in chapter 1, when God made the man and the woman, he said that they are both made in his image. Like, even if there's a distinction in the roles or the functions of men and women in creation, in terms of just the bare fact of what a man and a woman are, in the beginning, there is equality. They're not the same, but they are equal. Now, we could go on, we could ask all kinds of other questions about creation, but we have some answers to the question, why? Okay? In terms of why did God create what he created, we have some answers now to why. The God of the universe was overflowing with love and and joy and possibility, and he wasn't lonely or bored. But in order to take that glory that he enjoys and reflect it out to the whole universe, he creates this, this garden, this temple, this earthly kingdom, and he plants humans in it as its special caretakers who are going to 
keep on creating and blessing and flourishing forever. So in the beginning, it really was on earth as it is in heaven. And God was thrilled. He was thrilled by it. And he said it was very good. That's the why of creation, okay? That's the why. And some of us believe that story. And, and some of us live like it. And we, our, our, our attitudes and our assumptions uh, are in, about creation inform the ways we live on earth. They inform the ways that we relate to one another. They ref- reflect, they're reflected in the, way, the choices that we make about how we relate to the earth and its resources. And that's great. But some of us have forgotten that this is our story. I think some of us have come to believe some stories that are incompatible with the true creation story. Some of us have come to internalize some stories that are just, they're just wrong. And they're dangerous. And they're harming us, and they're harming the earth. And those, those stories need to be changed and confronted with the true story of creation. So, so let's do that. Let's go back to those stories that we heard earlier. Let's talk first of all about Peter, okay? Peter's the guy who sees nothing wrong with playing all day. Now, let me just say, there may be all kinds of mental health reasons why a guy might be living in his parents' basement at 27 and refusing to get a job and playing video games all day, okay? But based on just what we know about Peter, it seems like the story that he's told himself is that we only work to make money. If you don't need money, there's no need to work. And if I, if I could, I would let Peter know that's just not how it is. I would let Peter know that he's part of a much bigger story that includes work. And I really like how uh, Dr. Ann Bradley says it. She's a professor of business and ethics, and she's also a follower of Jesus. She says, we live out the cultural mandate through our work. Work is a pre-fall thing, and as such, it's not a curse, but a gift. Work is not to be viewed with dread, but with joy. Each person has a unique opportunity to contribute to the cultural mandate that no one else has ever had, because every single individual has something unique to offer that only he or she can give. Do you hear that? I just think that would be such good news to a a dude like Peter. Don't you think? Peter wasn't made to stare at a screen and play all day. Like that nobody was. That is no one's purpose in life. He needs to find some meaningful work and do it well. And that will fulfill him. That's what he's made for. Well, then we heard about Beth and Jean, the real estate agents in Hamilton. Now, I would want to say here, like, there is nothing wrong with creating wealth and being well paid for the work that you do. I'd even say that working hard and managing a property, that actually can be part of subduing the earth, stewarding uh, the creation. I think that that's true. But that's not what they're doing. Who is, who's flourishing because of what they do? Who, in the, who is benefiting from, from what Beth and Jean are doing? Well, nobody but Beth and Jean. Right? They're not creating flourishing for anybody but themselves. Listen to this from Luke Bobo. He's an American pastor and a theologian. He says, all human work in some ways is intended to contribute to the flourishing of all mankind. Changing a diaper, taking out the garbage, creating a spreadsheet, writing an email, sending a text message, doing a PowerPoint presentation. I'd even add to that buying and selling a property in Hamilton, Ontario. All these forms of work contribute to the flourishing of fellow image bearers. And I think that's so true. 
except Beth and Jean's work, it's contributing to no one's flourishing. And so if I could, I'd say, you know, Beth and Jean, what if you took like, what if half of the homes you sell next year, what if you price them below market value so that a family can, can buy it, can afford it and can move in? Like that might help other people to flourish, don't you think? So that's Beth and Jean. And then we heard about Jasmine. Jasmine is this young woman who's accepted a narrative that only men are capable of doing important work. Like only men are the ones who matter. And it's just not true. That's not God's story. Like at creation, it's not like Adam had a lot of God's image and Eve only had a little bit of it. Right? It's not like Adam had a double portion of the image of God and she had a tiny sliver of it. And Jasmine needs to know God made both man and woman in his image. Every man or woman is an image bearer and has dignity and worth and importance as a, as a prince, as a princess over creation. Like whatever she's hearing elsewhere, that's what God says she is. She has dignity and value and importance and beauty, not because of what she does and not because of what anybody tells her she should do, but because of what God made her as an image-bearing woman. Well, then we talked about Carlo. Carlo's the guy who is the the head of this multinational uh, brand and his company is exploiting the earth's resources because he believes this narrative that it's all there for his, for his taking. Like it, it all exists for him to take advantage of. Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to get rich off the earth's resources. He might as well do it. He might as well be the one. Now, he feels a little bit guilty about the pollution and the deforestation and the extinction. But he's not going to be around to feel the consequences. So he might as well get rich off of it, right? And Carlo is certainly not the only CEO of a multinational brand who feels that way. Most of them, it seems, do. But it's not okay. Like, it's really not. We, we call that greed. And that's why I love this from Sandra Richter. She's that Old Testament scholar we heard from earlier. She says, if I were to summarize the message of the Old Testament regarding creation care into a single proverb, it would be this. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. You may make use of it in your need, but you shall not abuse it in your greed. No, in God's story, the earth belongs to him we're its caretakers. He's entrusted it to us. If we really believe that, if we really believe that, that God has entrusted the earth into our care so that we would take care of it, so that there would be more of it for those who come after us, then not only is Carlo acting against that design, not only is Carlo guilty of some really serious sin, but I think we we won't do business like Carlo in our own businesses, in our own business practices. We won't follow his example. But not only will we not do business like Carlo, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't even do business with Carlo. Well, there's one last story to look at, and this is the story of Dan. Dan, somewhere along the line, has learned that the world is going to burn, and his only job, his main job, is to see human souls go to heaven when they die. That's his job. He's been put here to see people leave the earth and go to heaven when they die. And, you know, it's, it's not that that story is wrong so much as it's just incomplete. It's incomplete. 
Nancy Piercy is a biologist and a theologian, and she says, our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. And, and in the same way, I would tell Dan, yeah, go ahead and plant a garden and clean up trash and start a food bank and give away clothes and admire beauty through an art installation. None of that is a waste of time. All of these things can be ways that we are creating flourishing for ourselves and for those who come along after us. That's part of the flourishing mission that we're designed for. So go ahead, Dan. Don't don't stop that work. Go ahead and do it. And, Dan, go ahead and tell people about Jesus. Of course, tell people about Jesus. There are going to be people who will believe the message that's coming from our mouths, and there will be people who believe the message that's coming from our actions. And we need both. In fact, it seems to me, if we convince people to be saved and escaped off to heaven when they die, like, that's not bad. That's something. But if that's all we do, we're actually not really that different from those who think that the human race is a cancer and needs to end. Like, both groups are treating humanity mainly as a problem. Both believe we're mainly a disease. The difference seems to be that one of them thinks that the solution is to remove the cancer. Make the earth great again by wiping out humanity voluntarily. The other sees the solution as removing the earth from the equation. And I just think that in, in the story of creation, we have another option, which is God's instruction to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, work the garden and watch over it. And when that's happening, we will flourish and the earth will flourish. When that happened in creation, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. I just can't help believing that when that's happening now and God sees some of his people working for the flourishing of humanity and working for the flourishing of the earth, God still believes it's very good. Well, here's our take it home questions for the week. Uh, these are going to be online later this week if you want to check those out on our Facebook page or on Instagram. The first question is, what practices have you adopted for caring for the earth and its resources? How do you care for the earth and its resources? Question two, how does this mandate we've been given to be fruitful and multiply, how, do, how, did that, how does that inform your vocation and how you chose it in the first place? Third question. What are some ways that as a church, as Benediction Church, that we can continue what God began in the garden? Let's pray together.
Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.